You're listening to Carl and Kenner's Hitting the Bar. In the blue corner, we've got Mr. Carl supporting Tottenham. In the red corner, we've got Mr. Kenner's supporting Arsenal. Together, they will be discussing all of your football views, all of your football news. So join us here on Carl and Kenner's Hitting the Bar. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Football Podcast. Carl and Kenner's Hitting the Bar. I'm Chris Carl. And I'm Jeff Saunders. And we're joined uh, by a very, very special guest, journalist and author, Kirk Blows. Hello, Kirk. Hi, Chris. All right, let's get started. First of all, we, we need to talk about Kirk. That's why you're here. You're our special guest. We're very privileged and uh, happy to have you here. You have written how many books about West Ham? Uh, would you believe eight? Eight books about West Ham. Is I mean, uh, there's obviously a lot of material. You're obviously a West Ham fan. Absolutely, yeah. And I mean, pe- people always ask me how can you how can, how can you write about a club that never wins anything? But uh, with West Ham, it's not it's, it's not about the trophies. It's about the, the non-stop drama that we get at West Ham, and I always describe it as the real life East Enders, really. Right. <laughs> Tell us what what was your best selling book and why? Actually, the first one, which is a bit of a worrying trend, but uh, <laughs> the first one was the authorised biography of Julian Dix. It was called Terminator. It came out in 1996, which seems like a long time ago now. All right, all right. Well, Jeff, you're a West Ham fan, so you know I've got two West Ham fans here against me, the Tottenham fan. Kirk also edited how many magazines? Well, the main thing was I edited Hammers News, which was the official club magazine of West Ham. But part of the deal was to edit magazines for other Premier League clubs that we had contracts with. So that included Arsenal, Leeds, Crystal Palace, and also got involved with magazines for Chelsea and Leeds United. All right, I mean, you were editing all those at the same time as I know conflict of interest. Um, not really, no. I mean, the only it's interesting actually. We also had a contract with Tottenham Hotspur. They were the only Premier League club that would not allow us to produce their own editorial. All the other clubs trusted us as uh, experienced journalists to produce balanced content for the official club magazines. But Tottenham wouldn't trust us, so basically they would produce the words and uh, material and, and send it to us, and we <laughs> and we would stick it together. So that was as far as we were trusted with Tottenham. I don't know why. What that says about Tottenham, I'll leave. I'll leave people to go away and think about that. Was, was this under a, a sort of particular leadership at Tottenham over a long period of time? It was It was the five-year period between 95 and, and 2000, so we're going back a, a little bit now. Yeah, I mean, I could say a lot of things about Tottenham, but I'd, ra- I'd, ra- I'd rather not get uh, sued, so... <laughs> All right, before we, uh, the three of us discuss what's happened in the Premier League this uh, and beyond this last week, uh, we're going to go to Jeff's trivia question for this week. Okay, this, w- this one is a little bit complicated to explain, but in 1915, the, the football in, in, in professional football was, was stopped because of the First World War, and it started again in 1919. In 1919, as well as starting again, they decided to increase the number of teams in the First Division by two. In history, when this had happened, the the two teams that had been relegated just stayed in the division, and then the two who were promoted came in, and th- there was your extra two. This time, it was different. In this time, they promoted the team that finished fifth in the second division. What team was that? All right, well, we'll find out the answer to that at the end of the show. Right, let's get on. Uh, we've got a lot to talk about, of course, as usual. Where do we start, guys, from this weekend's football? Because there were some surprising results, and some very, as a Tottenham fan and West Ham fans, I suppose, some pleasing results elsewhere, apart from our own teams. Can we start as we normally do with Arsenal? 
Drawing at home to Sheffield United. Well, I, I don't think that was uh, a, a huge shock, really. I mean, you've only got to look at Sheffield United's record this season. They only lost their first away game, I think, after about six or seven efforts. So, you know, away from home, they have been very strong. Defensively, very, very, very strong as well. So I don't think that's a huge shock, really. And, and you look at Arsenal, and they keep, don't keep many clean sheets, do they? So I think that was always always a real possibility. I'm not, not, not sure why people were so surprised. Well, yeah, I agree. And, and I think... I mean, maybe Chris couldn't confirm, but I'm pretty sure Chris and I predicted that result last week. It was the result that was always going to happen. Arsenal can probably score, but they'll definitely concede. Okay, so Arteta, any different, any better? Well, I can't see any difference. Are Arsenal any better than since Wenger left? No, I, I can't see... I, I struggle to look at the screen and work out what formation they're playing. And I still do. I mean, under Emery, it became a farce. But at the moment, I, I don't see anything, any improvement. Talking to some Arsenal fans on Sunday at this event that we went to, uh, which was a thing about Mark Plantenberg, this Arsenal fan opposite me was telling me how much better it is. And I said, well, wh- what was better? Please tell me. And he couldn't. All he could all he could come up with really was he felt better. I mean, I just think Arsenal's problems are, are quite deep-rooted and you, you, they've been in decline for quite some time now going back to the final three or four years under Wenger so it's not going to be I think it's unrealistic to expect anybody to go in there and, and, and magically turn it around I think Arteta's got his work cut out and really you've got to give him two or three years to change the shape of that side I mean the first thing obviously he's got he's got to sort the defense out because they are shipping goals they can't keep clean sheet he, he can work on that in the short term but I still think it's going to take two or three seasons possibly longer to get them back to challenging for Champions League places. And you've interviewed Arsene Wenger a few times, haven't you? Yes, I mean, I used to have a monthly sit-down meeting with him for a two-year period. I'd go up to Sopwell House in uh, St Albans and sit down with him and spend about an hour with him just chewing the fat, talking about what's happened over the previous four weeks and looking ahead. And he was fascinating company. Mm. Um, very, obviously, very professor-like, very intelligent. I, I could sit there and just listen to him all day, to be, to be fair. But Arteta's certainly no Wenger. No, not at all. And that's that, that is a problem. I mean, Man United have got the same problem. They've not recovered from losing Alex Ferguson, and Arsenal are going to spend years trying to recover from the loss of Arsene Wenger. And both teams have made this, what, what I consider to be the same mistake. They both put people in charge who've got no history and track record of managing Premier League football teams. The pro- the problem is when you've had managers at a club for so long. I mean, you you can you, all right. Fergie won won the title in his last season, but. You could argue he didn't leave the squad in good shape. I mean, it was badly overage, and they did need to, to replace quite a few players, it, albeit after having won the league by 11 points, I think it was. I mean, both both Arsenal and, and, and Man United, you're absolutely right to say, I mean, that they've made mistakes in replacing those managers, which has compounded the problems that they've got. And, you know, consequently, they're not going to be solved overnight. Both clubs have to look back and say they've made some terrible mistakes in the transfer market. They've invested very badly, invested a lot of money in very poor players. And it's going to take years to turn those situations around. Now, Manchester United have the money that would enable them to do that in terms of buying the players. Their problem is identifying the players because they don't don't have any sort of strategy. 
that an acquisition can fit into. It's almost like entirely reactive. Oh, they hear this player's available. Oh, we'll go for him. Oh, we'll go for him. They were after the young lad Haaland several weeks ago, and he decided to join Borussia Dortmund. Got a hat-trick at the weekend and was a real star. Sure. Chose them ahead of Manchester United. And there have been a number of players in the last six months who Manchester United have chased who've refused to go to Manchester United because nobody knows what the hell's going on. Nobody knows what's going on at Arsenal. The issue for Arsenal is that they won't have the money to buy the players. If you are a self-styled, we're a Champions League club, we're top four, we're, you know, we're part of the elite, then your players have to show that. Don't they? Well, you run down the, the team list at Arsenal and you go, well, where are, the, where are the players that a top four club should have? There's Obama Yang, maybe the goalie, and well, that's it. Particularly in defence, you look at the players, and, and they wouldn't have got into an Arsenal side absolutely uh, yeah. in the old in the past. So, so the standard has dropped. And another problem is is getting rid of players sometimes because I mean Sanchez obviously has played for Arsenal and Manchester United. All right, he's on loan uh, into Milan at the moment, but a problem with Pogba as well. If they do decide they want to get rid of some of these players, how do they when they want so much money? Trying to get rid of them is easier said than done. But it, it is quite established now that the the selling club will subsidise the wages. I mean, that, that's been going on for quite a while. So I'd, I would imagine in, in these situations, that's what's going to happen. Getting rid of Sanchez was just to get most of his wages off the book, wasn't it? it was yeah, I mean, it was on a, a, an unbelievably... Yeah. amount wasn't it half a million a week half a million a week yeah. Yeah. yeah but Manchester United do have access to the money to buy anybody they want Arsenal don't Arsenal are in the opposite position Stan Kroenke has, has gone in for this this incredible mega stadium complex which is much much more than that loads of hotels and retail and all sorts of stuff in Los Angeles for the the Chargers and the Rams which the team he owns it's well over budget a long long way over budget and very very late so that's where all the money's going to go. It's not going to go to transfers for Arsenal. Yeah, I mean, Arteta's going to have to use whatever money he's got very wisely. And it won't be about buying big names on silly amounts of money. He's going to have to, you know, use his intelligence uh, and bring in younger players and develop them. So, I mean, Arsenal have got, got to basically say, we'll give you at least three years to rebuild the side. We're not going to judge you over a period of 15 or 20 games. I mean, obviously they can't get dragged into a relegation battle, but I don't think Arsenal are that bad yet. Yes, you want to want them to be challenging to get into the Champions League but I just think they're going to have to be realistic and accept that they're going to be a transition they're going to be in transition for a few years yet. Yeah, I think that they could could realistically aim for 7th or 8th but not, not in the European places, no. By the way, Sanchez, you mentioned Sanchez for United. He's on loan. Now United have got all these injuries. They can call black back players who are on loan, apart from Sanchez, because there's no callback clause in his contract. And he's injured. And he's injured anyway. All right, I'll cut that bit out then. <laughs> Actually, no, uh, he's injured. All right. Uh, but yeah, they can't even call him back, even when he gets free from injury. But apart from... Liverpool, who go marching on, and we'll talk about their game against Manchester United a bit later. They're unbeaten in something like 14, 15 months, so nobody expects them to falter now. But the teams chasing them are sort of giving it to them. They're gifting it to them on a silver platter. Manchester City drawing at Hampton, Chelsea losing to Newcastle. Leicester losing again. Uh, so let's start with Manchester City. What's gone wrong there? If something has gone wrong, but to be 2-1 up at home, they should have been 3-0 up, shouldn't they? And yet 2-2. I just look at the Manchester City team and the squad as a whole and I just think it needs I mean you can't question its quality obviously but I just think maybe it's a little bit stale I think quite a few of those players have been there for a little while now and I just think it needs a few new faces just to freshen it up 
Do you think, I mean, it, it happens in life, in other careers, I suppose, that after a certain amount of time, even if you're winning stuff, you get bored and you need a new challenge. Everything becomes too familiar. Your surroundings become too familiar. And, you know, this change. That's why some of us move countries where we live from time to time because you just get so bogged down in the routine and maybe the players like you say, need freshening up. They probably need a new challenge. They're good enough, but they've just, just had enough. They've got a challenge facing them because, I mean, obviously the demands on City at the moment to prove that they can challenge to win the, the Champions League. So that I think that I think they have a focus on that. Maybe that has slightly undermined their efforts in the Premier League. They have had some very unusual results this year. They lost to Palace last year at home and this year got a draw. But, I mean, losing to Norwich away was was unbelievable unbelievable I don't know I mean there's questions about Guardiola is he committed I mean he has to keep coming out and and saying I, I will still be here next year unless I'm sacked there is a little bit of I don't know doubt sort of creeping in into the club really behind the yeah. scenes the, the word you chose, stale, was the word, first word that came into my mind as well. If you go back in, back in history a bit, one of the, the all-time great managers, Bella Gutmann, who, who managed Benfica to European Cup wins, he always said that a, a manager at the top can only spend three years at any one club. He said, because after that, all the players, they've heard everything you've got to say. They've heard it. So what are you going to do to, to change it, to make it better? And I think that's where Guardiola is now. There's no question at all about the quality of those players. They're fantastic. What, what can he say that's new? What, what can he do? I mean, he can stop playing John Stones for it. <laughs> for a starter and that would help them but other than that he's a bit you know he's a bit stuck and that's maybe why he's always done the three years three years at Bayern three years here three years there and maybe that's it's time for him to go they drew 2-2 two -two with Crystal Palace didn't they Man City does that say anything about Crystal Palace or is that all because of what you guys have just been saying about City because I think for me Palace are sort of just there in the Premier League and I think Jeff said on the radio show we do for 93.6 Global Radio here on the Costa del Sol he said that you know Palace sometimes they like to niggle people and they upset teams and that's kind of their role and purpose in the Premier League because they don't seem to do anything else Roy Hodgson 72 year old manager going strong He's done a good job there, obviously, taking them from zero up to where they are now. But were Palace that good or were City just that bad? I think you have to commend Crystal Palace because, I mean, a lot of teams, when, when they go to places like Man City, they're beaten before they even step over the white line. I mean, I've been watching West Ham for, for 40 years where you just forget that the idea of them getting a shock by, you know, getting a, a win or a draw anywhere at a top, top four club because psychologically they're beaten before they even go out there. So I think you have to take your hat off to Palace. They did it last year. They beat them 3-2 uh, at the Etihad. And, and when you think they had the lead, went 2-1 down and still showed the character to come back and, 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 and level right at the death... So you, you have to take your hat off to them. Obviously, a little bit of complacency on City's part. I mean, the interesting thing, I'd like to know how Liverpool's surge to the title by only dropping two points all season, how that's affected Manchester City, because it's almost like it doesn't matter how good City are, they were never going to catch Liverpool this year anyway. I wouldn't say they're thrown in the towel, but it, I think it's enough for players to kind of just drop 5%, and that's enough to make a difference, I think. Yeah, I, I'd agree with that. It leads on to probably the, the only thing that can stop Liverpool this season is is that their players start believing that as well and they start dropping five percent because the difference between two teams playing football in the Premier League is often less than five percent anyway that's the biggest risk for Liverpool he Klopp has got to keep those players motivated He's got to set them targets like we're not going to be beaten all season this is what we're going to go and do well that is the challenge for them isn't it now I mean they've created a new challenge for themselves by going unbeaten and winning the Premier League with, with a record number of points of course so there's carrots that he can dangle in front of the, in front of his players Klopp 
it is bo- it's slightly boring for the rest of us but then again the closer we get to the end of the season the more exciting it will be for for fans thinking just watching them every game can they win another one the reason why I think it's still quite exciting is when you watch and listen to Liverpool players talking about Klopp they love him they'll do anything for him and that's that's wonderful you can tell there's a spirit there and you've only got to look at uh, as you say I mean at the end of the games they're all embracing Klopp aren't they and he's, he comes onto the pitch and he embraces his players so he's obviously got a fantastic relationship with them and it's the right balance I mean he seems to be their friend but you know they have utmost respect for him sometimes you can be too close to, to your players as a manager you can be friendly with them and they won't respect you so he seems to create the, 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 the right relationship with his players to get the best out of them yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting you say that about Klopp because I get exactly the same impression. Cause you can be too close to the players. Tim Sherwood at Tottenham, I mean, he was, he was just their mate, wasn't he? And it didn't work. It worked for two games, then it didn't work. And then you've got, I, I sense, and I have no absolutely no facts to base this on, but I sense at Tottenham in the mornings at training, a bit like at school when you're worried about the, the slightly unstable teacher coming in to give you a lesson, I sense that they're all sat there or stood there waiting, going, you know, which Mourinho are we going to get today? The one who's our pal or the, or the one who's, you know, got a tick and getting a little bit narky with us because you, you sense that Mourinho can be several different people with his players where I think Klopp is completely the same person throughout. No, win, lose or draw, I think he's still extremely reasonable and well-spoken with his players and he told, I'm sure he puts puts his foot down but I think in such a way that they understand him and they, they think he's being reasonable. And other managers, I think, I think you have to be a certain type of person to be a manager and I think maybe a bit of psychotic kind of instability may be part of the job but Klopp does seem very very stable and I think that means that players know where they are with him and I think just right they do like him yeah, and plus he's got incredible teeth. You've got to, yeah, you've yeah. got to. That's got to be acknowledged. I think. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, if he wasn't a football manager, he'd be presenting Euro trash on MTV, wouldn't he, or something like that? <laughs> but he has got that kind of aura about him. All right, let's move on. Um, Southampton were winning against Wolves. Jeff, we were watching that game, weren't we? I'm going to come on to West Ham in a moment, but what's happened at Southampton is they had a bit of a revival, and then. Wolves, who'd had a bit of a wobble, then go and beat them. Wolves are a very good side, and I've talked against people who've been been writing them off all season. One interesting fact about Wolves, they've played 39 games so far this season. More than a full season? Yeah, but already. But to come back from that, you know, 2-0 down to win 3-2 is wonderful. And, and they're a good side with very good players, very well managed. So yeah. they, they know what they're doing, they're very good at doing it. Of the chasing pack, as I said, you know, like Leicester, I think are still going to finish in the top four. But Wolves are sort of mounting a little counter-rebellion against the established Uniteds and Arsenals and Tottenham's who just don't seem to be in the, in the race this season. Uh, and Wolves are coming on a little bit stronger than the others. Yeah, and they, I mean, they've recovered from a very slow start to the season where they drew uh, a lot of games. They weren't losing, but they weren't winning either. And obviously, you know, two points cost you dearly in, in the Premier League. So they've recovered from that. They've got used to playing in, in, in the Europa League. So yeah, that they've come back. There are a little, you know, a few few fluctuations in their form, but overall, you know, they're going to finish in the, in the top ten. You know, probably could, well, probably will match their seventh place finish last year. I'd have thought their points performances and and win loss percentages are 
almost the same as last year. So I, I can't see any reason why they why they won't do it, other than injuries, because their squad is not very big. But as long as they can stay reasonably injury free, I, I still have them as sixth, to be honest. What do we make then of uh, Chelsea, who seem to be leaving the door open for somebody else to come and say snatch a top four position? I mean, what do you make of them losing to Newcastle? I mean, it was there was twenty seconds to go, wasn't there? So I suppose you can't say that's the manager's fault or the team's fault, apart from maybe lack of concentration. Well, no, I mean the issue for them was was execution, wasn't it? They they had plenty of possession. They they got up to the the edge of the penalty area, you know, for the whole of the match and didn't score. And, and that's th- that's the issue they have. They've got to convert possession and and superiority into goals, which is what Lampard's out in the market looking for at the moment. Edinson Cavani being his preferred answer. So Chelsea, Leicester, City, all sort of leaving it open. But who's going to be top four? Tottenham came away with a draw at Watford. Nothing inspiring about that. Nothing new under Mourinho, I don't think really. By the way, Pochettino's first eleven games because we're now into 11 Premier League games with Mourinho. Pochettino had 14 points. Mourinho's got 17 out of 11. So looking at Pochettino's last 10 games, a lot less than uh, 14 points. So there's been no change, but it, it hasn't got worse. It's just not dramatically improved. So no change at Tottenham at all. Are they going to finish top four? Who's going to finish top four? Well, it's a funny one. I mean, when, when Leicester won the title, obviously... It didn't take take away the gloss of, of what happened because it was an incredible story, a real fairy tale. But, you know, the reality is all the other big boys that sh- that year massively underachieved. You know, they were all in that word again, transition. And you look at the... It's the same this year. Manchester United, Arsenal, Chelsea, Tottenham are all really not on top of their game and and even City, by their standards, are not performing as they would like. So everyone, all the top teams are underachieving which is obviously making it easier for Liverpool I mean for me the the current top four will be the top four you think the current four you don't think it's going to change I don't think so no no, no so not no. even Wolves are going to break in Wolves I think will end up sixth maybe fifth I don't know the the issue for Leicester is they've got to get Ndidi fit mm. because the downturn in their performance is when Ndidi's been injured and he's such a great player you know no team can afford to to sort of take him out of their team and and expect to perform the same. Well, unless you've replaced him with Kante, I suppose, but they haven't. All right. What about the teams that are in the relegation battle? Um, Southampton, bit of a bit of a rise in their fortunes, apart from this last one getting beaten by Wolves at home after being two 0 up. There's some relegation battles this week, isn't there? There are. Well, yeah. I mean, obviously Tuesday night, uh, Villa, Aston Villa at home to Watford and, and and Bournemouth versus Brighton. So four teams in in the relegation uh, battle there. Crucial games. These six pointers really really do matter. I mean, who's going to go down? I, I actually think it will be the bottom three as they stand. So we've got top four and bottom three. <laughs> but I, I think I think I think I still think. I mean, Norwich obviously got valuable three points against Bournemouth at the weekend, but I think Norwich will go. I just for me they just don't win enough games and they just don't score enough goals and Aston Villa I still think um, they've lost a lot of players through injury all right they've just spent 10 million on a, a Tanzanian striker Sonata uh, to fill the gap left by by uh, Wesley's injury because he's out for the season but I still think Villa are very much up against it. And then you then you look at Bournemouth, who've c- totally collapsed. Um, I think they've lost eight out of ten, something like that. And I just don't I just don't see them coming back from that. I just think they're going to plummet. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think Eddie Howe is in the, the the position that we talked about earlier on. In fact, he even admitted it in an interview. What could I say to these players that they haven't already heard? Well, he's actually started to question himself now. I mean, he admitted that a couple of games ago. I'm now look, I'm looking at me. What can I? What am I doing wrong? What I can be doing? 
doing better. And I think it's always a terrible sign when when a manager starts talking, questioning his own performance publicly. Yeah, of course. The the players want to believe. Want, no, no, let's put it this way. The players want to be able to believe that the manager knows what he's doing. Exactly. And, so it sends out the wrong yeah. wrong signals yeah. totally. I mean, even if the, even if the manager's bluffing, and lots of them are, and lots of them do, the players want to believe it. And he's not giving them anything to believe. And I think the, the other problem there is that they were kind of ma- they were kind of like making excuses for themselves with, with their injury crisis. I mean, it, obviously it was valid, but I just think if you give players an excuse to underperform, they'll generally take advantage of it. And and it, that seems to have played out because I mean the players that have come into the side should really be trying to prove what they can do. They, they've gone on the field with a defeatist attitude. It seems to me. Yeah, I agree with you. It's it, it's a huge problem for them, and I think they'll go down because of it. It's good for West Ham because West Ham need three teams to be worse than them this season. Right, well, that brings us nicely on to... I mean, there's two West Ham fans here. A draw at home to fellow underachievers Everton at the weekend. What did you make of the performance? And you've just obviously got a new goalkeeper. Roberto has finally left, hasn't he, yesterday, I think? Yes, Roberto's gone, gone to Alaves on, on loan for, for the rest of the season, which is a relief. Cause not West for Alaves, isn't it? Uh, not for... No, that's true. <laughs> but Darren Randolph is back, and I thought he played... He certainly didn't do anything wrong. He came through it without aggravating his injury, so that was good. But overall, I think West Ham were would be very disappointed not to have won that match against Everton. They've now dropped 17 points from winning positions. When you think they've only got 23 points at the moment. So, yeah, okay, you're not going to win every game that you take the lead in. But when you, if they did, they'd have 40 points already. It's unbelievable. And you have to ask the question, well, what is it about West Ham when they take the lead? What happens? Obviously, it's a new problem for David Moyes to try and address because most of those uh, results would have come under uh, Manuel Pellegrini. But, I mean, he's got to look at the character of the side. Well, I mean, obviously, I mean, his, his main thing now is to make West Ham hard to beat. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, obviously, he, he needs to get into their heads as well because obviously something's going wrong there when you take the lead and you can't hold on to it. You look at the players that, that he's rumoured to be looking at, Joe Allen, to me, would be a you know good player to have because he's, he's tough. He puts himself about. He never gives up. There's, there's never a lost cause with him. Well, yeah, I wouldn't have a problem with that. And it amazes me, the West Ham fans, I mean, there was a, a protest at the game as well on Saturday. Several hundred fans outside. It was an organised process protest. It was an, a peaceful one. But it, because it coinc- that match coincided with the 10th anniversary of, of David Gold and David Sullivan buying the club. And they just don't feel West Ham have made any progress in that time. I mean, I think that's unfair. I think they have. I think they had to move to the Olympic Stadium. I know people complain about it, but just think about where West Ham may have been had they not made the move they'd certainly be criticised for showing a lack of ambition had they just stayed at Upton Park with its capacity of 34,000 so I think the club had to move and I actually think you know what can you criticise Golden Sullivan for over the last few years that they they showed ambition in bringing Manuel Pellegrini into the club They've spent over 150 million since his arrival two years ago. It didn't work out. I don't think that's their fault. Uh, I think Manuel Pellegrini massively underachieved. I don't understand why the fans are blaming the owners for showing ambition there. No, I, I, I agree with you there. It's um, When you look at that squad, you look, go down the list of the names. West Ham should not be down there. You've got to say that's down to the manager. I mean, you have nowhere else to go with your logic. Yeah, I mean, what worries me, this this feeling against the board seems to be building up ahead of steam. And I'm worried because, uh, I mean, David Moyes has seen it all before, of course, when he was there two years ago. And there were protests against the Burnley match. Uh, there were three pitch invasions during that game. 
I mean, it was awful to see. Uh, ironically, it did actually bring about the move to bring in Pellegrini because West Ham felt they had to be seen to be showing ambition. So th- they gave the fans what they wanted, but it didn't work. But they don't seem to be getting any credit for trying to give the fans what they thought they wanted. We're back to where we were in terms of David Moyes being back at the club. And I just want the fans to be patient and just let Moyes do his work, organise that squad, because that's all they really need, because they do have the players, and let them try and win some games. So I think if there's going to be this sort of feeling of discontent all the time, it's going to create pressure at the ground, and that's not going to help them win, win their home games. No, I agree with you. And I think f- for the position that West Ham are in, David Moyes is a pretty good appointment. He's not going to make a lot of mistakes. He will organise things. He will make them play better. And we will probably lose some of our better players at the end of the season. So he's got a rebuilding job. And I think Moyes is perfectly good enough to, to do that. But, but coming back to, to, to Joe Allen, I mean, I get the feeling that the fans will be up in arms where we assign him. They'll complain, oh, well, he's been playing with Stoke in the Championship for the last few years. Why? That's not the kind of player we should be signing. But I think it's needs must at the moment. There is a gaping hole in the squad in terms of having like a, a central midfielder who can really take the ball forward. I mean, we've got Declan Rice and Mark Noble as holding midfielders. And then we've got lots of fancy playmakers. And there's nobody in that sort of central midfield area that can get from box to box. So we I actually have, think Joe Allen will be... be yeah, a, we don't have a box to box midfielder. Exactly. So it'd be a yeah. good signing if, if, if we can get no, That's why I was very happy that the, uh, was it Gedson Fernandez actually went to Tottenham? Because it's not what, not what West Ham needed at all. Well, I was going to say, I really don't understand why we're looking at him, but I do understand why we were looking at him. It was about all behind the scenes and the, the old boys network there working on that. I'm glad we didn't get him and I hope we get Joe Allen. Yeah, I mean, we've got to be making decisions now that are in the team's best interest and the club's best interest without worrying what the fans will think. We've got to stop making sort of glamorous appointments and glamorous signings. Oh, this will look good. It will get the fans back on side. If it's not, that's no good if it's not ultimately what what helps the team. So I think we have the the current top four and the current bottom three. And and everyone in the middle will carry on being as useless as they've been for the whole season. I think that just about sums it up. Before we move on, talking about West Ham and Everton there. Everton, after the game, Carlo Ancelotti, the Everton manager, came out and said that uh, his player, Dominic Calvert-Lewin, should be in the England squad. Now, of course, Harry Kane is injured. Uh, Rashford looks like he's going to be out for a long enough time for it to put him in doubt for uh, a start for England. He's out with a back injury. Calvert-Lewin has got four goals in six games games under Ancelotti 11 in 26 now Jeff and I we kind of have our way of judging whether a striker is good or not 11 out of 26 is on the cusp between being a decent striker and a wasteful striker because one in two is sort of the average isn't it and 11 in 26 is just under that so is Dominic Calvert he's 22 so not a young young player is he ready for is he good enough for England really no No. and and if you could find me a majority of Everton fans who think he is then I'll change my mind. But most Everton fans I've spoken to don't think he is. Uh, Seamus Coleman said that Calvert-Lewin had stepped up to another level against West Ham. But it was, with all due respect, against West Ham. You know, it was a draw. It's not like he got a hat-trick or something. There seems to be a clamour just before any major competition for everybody saying, oh, this new player, this player, this player. That, that's exactly what it is. It's because, obviously, there is a lack of fit English strikers at the moment. And suddenly anyone that scores four goals in six games is suddenly yeah. being touted. As, as the next best thing so I, I don't go with I call it hype I mean for me he, he's got to produce over a much longer period of time before, I, before I'm convinced that he can uh, really uh, figure in the England squad before we have a look at this weekend's games and uh, Jeff's trivia question there are two subjects that always come up in this show 
no matter whether Steve is here or Jeff is here or I'm here, it's always the t- same two subjects. Arsenal, because, you know, we've, we like to have a laugh, and VAR. Jeff and I were uh, attended a very, very interesting speech by former Premier League referee, but still referee, Mark Clattenburg on Sunday. He was very fascinating. He gave his views on VAR, which coincided with Jeff's. We have to look at VAR because there was that incident in the Man United away at Liverpool game where De Gea was allegedly, well, judged by VAR to have been fouled and therefore a Liverpool goal didn't count. Yeah, and and that decision showed the, the problems with VAR in a nutshell. Uh, VAR is supposed to be used where there is an obvious error. And given that half the people, half the people who see that say it was a foul and half say it wasn't a foul it was clearly not an obvious error so if it's not an obvious error it should the, the benefit of the doubt should go to the attacking team well no well the benefit of the doubt should go to whatever the referee decided at the time this should be there it should only be changed if there's a clear and obvious error and there wasn't so how can that have been overturned and the problem which which i pointed out and which clattenberg talked about was you've got these people sat in stockley park in this bunker 16 of them making decisions about what happened on the pitch why is the referee not making that decision why does the referee not go and look at the screen and look at it from a different angle than the one he had and say yeah okay i was wrong we'll change it if they do that then everyone in the in the ground suddenly understands what's happening whereas at the moment the people who've paid to go and see that match get less information than the people sat on their sofa watching it on the on the TV. Uh, one of the things Clattenberg said, which is pretty much that, he said that, I mean, he's refereeing in China, where he said the culture and the, the way people support football is different, they're more patient. Uh, he said, but he goes to the pitch side monitor at least two to three times every game, and nobody has an issue with it because they want the right result. In China, they want it to be fair and correct, which to me seems, that's... F- I want it to be fair and correct. I don't want to win a game by a dodgy goal because it will be forever in debate. And I don't see why going to the pitch side monitor slows things down. Well, it, it doesn't because we've seen that the, the decision-making process with VAR now, it's, it's some of them, one took six minutes. They're averaging two minutes. It's nonsense. It's just rubbish. If, it, if it's taken you two minutes to make a decision, then it clearly was not clear and obvious, was it? I think they need to take the clear and obvious uh, element out of, of our understanding of what when VAR should be used because I think that's creating confusion. Because for me, it's not about it being clear and obvious it's about correcting a wrong decision and when we're talking about offsides for example that is a factual thing what's clear and obvious well six inches offside is that obvious so i mean it's a gray area isn't it what what is clear and obvious i think the most important thing is getting the decisions right so i don't have a problem with var as as you say jeff i mean they've really got to start using now the the pitch side monitors and they've now said that they will use them for red card decisions but i think this is just the start of a transition whereby in maybe in a year's time all decisions will be made by the referee using the pitch side monitor rather than being told what the final decision is by the guys at Stockley Park. I agree with you completely, and that's what Clattenberg said. He, he didn't say it would happen, but he said it has to happen because th- what's happening at the moment is a farce. Yeah, I mean, Mike Riley, obviously, I mean, he, he keeps saying that he, he watched the Women's World Cup and he was concerned by the amount of time being lost by referees looking at the, the pitch side monitors. He's made a decision in the interests of the game as, as he sees it that it will help keep the game flowing or keep the game it will speed up the decision making process because the guys in Stockley Park are already in front of the screens you haven't got to wait for the ref to walk across half the pitch potentially stand there for five minutes himself waiting for different angles to come up on the screen whereas obviously in Stockley Park they've got lots of screens and they can view lots of angles all at the same time because there's a whole army of them up there so 
I can see why he made why he issued that instruction, but I disagree with it because at the end of the day, you want the referee to be in charge. And what he's effectively done is created two referees: the guy in Stockley Park and the guy on the field. And it's almost like the the guy on the field is actually the assistant referee because he's not making the final decision. That's right. And we were all brought up knowing one thing about football: that the referee's decision was final. And now it isn't. I like VAR. The referee should always be in charge. And if he goes to the monitor, he's still maintaining his control and grip on the game. He's just reassuring himself that he made the right decision by getting the the advantage of looking at what he didn't see from different angles and then saying, you know what, I I made a mistake. I will change the decision. And I think that speeds up the game, if anything. And also it gives more clarity. So, yeah, I think VAR needs tweaking, but it's it's more the who interprets it and the way it's interpreted rather than how the actual technology is used. That's the way I look at it. Yeah, absolutely. I'm I'm all in favour of it. And I have no problem with using VAR. It's just got to be done right. It's it's like sort of justice. Justice doesn't need to be done. Just Justice has to be seen to be done. And that's where we are, I think. We're coming towards the end of the show. We've got a few things to get through, first of all. Uh, it is the fourth round of the FA Cup, the magic of the FA Cup, trademark. So we're going to have a quick look at some of the games. Obviously, you may be listening to this after the event, so you'll be able to check if we've got these right. Uh, some of the tastier draws, I suppose. Southampton against Tottenham. Probably, um, you know, a cup run would do Mourinho some good, but also for Southampton, maybe a game they don't need. Probably a game they don't need, but I think it's a game they'll win. What do you think, Kirk? Southampton, Tottenham in the FA Cup, fourth round? I think Southampton are very hard to kind of gauge. I think that there is an upturn, obviously, in terms of results there, but they are very unpredictable, as we saw against Wolves on Saturday. So I don't think Spurs will lose that, let's put it that way. All right, now another one involving your lot, of course. Uh, West Ham against West Brom. Now, West Brom chasing promotion. They actually lost, didn't they, as we're recording last night at home to Stoke. So, missed the chance of going clear at the top. They won't want, they won't want a cup run either, will they? You wouldn't have thought so, but... Um I don't know. I mean, they do say that winning is is a habit you should try and keep. I mean, the interesting thing from West Ham's point of view is obviously it's the return of of their former manager, Slaven Bilic. So so that will be interesting. And uh, it will look very bad if West Ham were to lose to their former manager. So that should be some motivation, I'd have thought. Do the players care? I, I, I think West Brom will win that. Now, Sheffield United have got the glamour tie. They're away at Millwall. Um, Sheffield United are in a sort of privileged, as far as I take it, in a privileged position that they were the bookies' favourite to go down. They are now, whatever it is, eighth in the table. They're not going to go down. They might even challenge for a place in Europe, but they're comfortable. So they might actually quite fancy a cup run. Yeah, I, I think this will be a draw and they'll win the replay back in Sheffield. Yeah, Millwall, Millwall are always a very tough side. So I think that that is a very difficult game for Sheffield United, actually. I, I really do. Brentford against Leicester. Um, Leicester, you know, they've, they've, they've lost the winning ways a little bit. Yeah, Leicester have lost their way and you'd think they'd win that, but they, they could have to settle for replay, I would say. All right, and then we've got Man City against Fulham. I mean, that's nailed on Man City, although we did watch Fulham a couple of weeks ago in the third round and they looked really decent. Yeah, but Man City should have much too much for Fulham. They, they should win that. Yeah, I mean, I, I hate to think what the bookies' odds will be on, on uh, uh, Man City. I mean, I mean, they were 12-1 to 1 on for Palace. So, you know, it'd be, it, I, can't, I can't imagine what the odds will be for, for, for a home win against Fulham. Um, yeah. Yeah, nailed on. 
Shrewsbury or Shrewsbury, I suppose, depending on what part of the country you're from, against Liverpool. Yeah, I mean, you expect Liverpool to put out a lot of the younger players. I mean, Shrewsbury boss was talking about he thinks his side have got a chance of winning. Yeah. I mean, I guess he has to say that and, and live the dream. But um, no, I mean, obviously, you'd expect Liverpool to win that, but it won't be anything like their, their, their top side, obviously. No, I mean, they did, by the way. I mean, Liverpool... I'd put Liverpool light, I suppose, did lose, what was it, 6-0 or 6-1 against Aston Villa in the League Cup. Um, they put out a very, I mean, it's unfair on the boys to say that, but weakened team, because uh, it was just sort of under-18s or under-21s or whatever. Yeah, don't Will think they do be, that in this game? It won't be that weak. I mean, because obviously they were in the, in the Club World Championship, weren't they? So they, they took the, the entire squad away with them and only left the kids at home to play the Villa match. It will be a weaker side, but not 100% full of kids. All right, and the last intro, I mean, there are other games available, but we're just sort of highlighting them. Bournemouth against Arsenal in the fourth round of the FA Cup. Again, both teams probably could do without it, in a way. Or maybe both teams need a run to just get something positive going. Again, what sort of Kurt was saying, you know, yeah. learning winning ways again. I'll, I'll say draw for that. I think Arsenal will win that because I just can't see... I mean, Bournemouth just seems to have completely fallen apart, to be honest. Confidence is shattered. It's a game they don't want. Uh, Eddie Howe actually doesn't really take the cups it, cup competitions very seriously at all. If you look at his team selections, he always makes a lot of changes for cup competitions because he knows that the Premier League is the most important thing. Uh, and if you look at the, the, the dire situation they are in at the moment, I expect him to put out a second string side for that. And I think he'll just throw the game. Yeah, I think so too. I kind of think that it'll be, unfortunately, a confidence boost for Arsenal and a, and a matter of save, saving Premier League position for Bournemouth in that one for me. If Arsenal actually managed to win. But you have to remember it is Arsenal. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you can give Arsenal a chance. They've just got to take it and who knows. All right, before we go back to, to Jeff's trivia question and the answer, I just want to ask Kurt Blows, author and journalist, a couple of questions about his books. Because, I mean, there's one that fascinating title out of all the eight you've written. Of course, Bring Me the Head of Trevor Brooking. <laughs> Fantastic title. What's that all about? It's funny because some people misread that and kind of th or misinterpret it and, and think that we're talking about beheading Sir Trevor, <laughs> which is not the case at all. In fact, we're, we're it's very much a case of you know, bring me the head of Trevor Brooking as a, as a as an item of worship because obviously the head of Trevor was responsible for West Ham winning the last trophy, mm. which was the FA Cup in 1980, with wow. his uh, with his header in the 1-0 win against Arsenal. So, and the book is basically about the 60 uh, dramatic highs and lows experienced at West Ham since that glorious moment and uh, as I always say with West Ham it, it's like a, the real life East End soap opera and uh, there's been no shortage of drama over that period so basically that's what that book's about. Eight books about West Ham if our listeners want to buy those books where are they available? Uh, they're all available on, on Amazon and the older ones such, such as the Julian Dix book I'm sure you can find it on eBay somewhere. I've enjoyed writing them as I say I mean with West Ham there's always something going on there's, and you know, I mean, this is the, the thing that intrigues people towards West Ham, really, that, that there's, you know, I mean, it's always going to be an exciting ride. There's always going to be drama. You never know what's going to uh, be around the corner. There's never a dull moment. Yeah, I think one more thing to add to that. I was explaining uh, a few years ago to, to a friend in Moscow about why I'm a West Ham fan and, and explained every football club has their song. And West Ham's song is I'm Forever Blowing Bubbles. This is a football club that's got a, their own song about failing. <laughs> <laughs> and that says everything about them. You know, it's, it, it, it is the classic team that can say it's the hope that kills you. All right, thank you. Thank you, Kirk. Um, bef before we go to Jeff's trivia question, one more question for Kirk. 
any more books in the future. Watch this space. All right. Uh, thank you to Kirk Blows for that. Jeff. Okay, the trivia question was basically which, which team was promoted from fifth place in the second division in 1919 to help increase the first division from uh, 18 to 20, or 20 to 22, actually. And that team was Arsenal. Boo hiss. Yeah, cheats. Well, uh, absolutely. <laughs> they, they did it. They, they bribed the, the committee that had to decide it. So the team that finished fourth and third didn't make it. The teams that were first and second were promoted anyway. Chelsea were given back their place because they own, they were only relegated because of match fixing by Manchester United. They, they paid Liverpool to throw the final game so that they would win and Chelsea would be relegated. And this is not opinion, by the way. This is all fact and can all be checked by, yes. by everybody. And it was all investigated at the time. And these are the facts. This is what happened. And Arsenal, the, the man who owned Arsenal paid a lot of money for Arsenal to leapfrog teams above them into the first division so whenever any Arsenal fan tells you oh we've never been relegated just ask them how they got there (laughs) Uh, so much changes so much stays the same yeah thank you Jeff for that that's the end thank you very much I'm Chris Carl I've been Jeff Saunders and I still am Kurt Blows thank you Jeff thank you Kirk we'll be back next week with more Carl and Kenner's Hitting the Bar the football podcast you've been listening to Carl and Kenner's Hitting the Bar join us again next week for more of their Twisted Football News all of their weird football views you can find them here every week on Carl and Kenner's Hitting the Bar we'll see you again shortly